Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Glenn Lowry, Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the Baylor-sponsored CLT is coming up on June 19th. Individuals who fill out an application interest form can take the CLT for free. Details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, uh, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have an amazing guest, uh, the one and only Dr. Glenn Lowry. Glenn is a professor uh, at Brown University. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much uh, for being on the program. Everywhere, every time I get on Twitter, I feel like you're kind of blowing up. You're like the most popular person uh, on social media right now, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, that is kind of amazing, Jeremy, but it's good to be with you. I don't know what to say about that. I'll take it, though. I'll take it. All right, uh, so, Glenn, we always love to, to kind of start off with the same question here on the Anchor Podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about your educational journey, even kind of your early memories of early childhood education. What was that like? Uh, did, you, did you love learning as a young child or did that develop later on? So I went to public schools in Chicago. My uh, family life was a little unstable. My mother was kind of bouncing from one place to another with two kids, a single mom, divorced early from my dad. And so I went to five different schools before the fifth grade, five different elementary schools before finally settling in the second half of the year of my fifth grade year in a place where I continued on through the eighth grade and graduated from grammar school and then went on to high school, public schools in Chicago. Um, I don't remember any preschool before uh, kindergarten. Um, so I don't really think, I think we were kept at home with uh, family members like aunts or something while my mother was working. But uh, I finished uh, high school at the age of 16 in Chicago. I got a pretty good education in the public schools in Chicago at that time. I got a double promotion when I was in elementary school. And so I was 16 years old when I graduated from high school. And I got a small scholarship to go to an engineering college in Chicago called the Illinois Institute of Technology. Um, but uh, I was uh, involved with a young woman. She became pregnant and I ended up dropping out of college and marrying and going to a community college at night and then working during the night and going full time during the day to the community college and it's a long story, but it ends up at Northwestern University where I got a scholarship in my junior year as an undergraduate. And I would say somewhere, you know, a love of learning. You asked me about love of learning. Um, I think I've always had it, uh, even in the earliest days. Uh, I, I used to sit with the encyclopedia and, you know, just spend hours and hours yeah. exploring stuff. The World Book, the World Book Encyclopedia uh, had good photographs in it. You know, and, and it was fun to, to sit with it. I was always good at math. I always liked puzzles. I learned how to use the slide rule when I was like eight years old. I was a chess player, always good at math. That's why I was at that engineering school. Um, 
and always liked to write. I, you know, I, I kept a journal when I was in high school. I was a shy kid because I was younger than all the other kids. So I was in love with the girl, you know, and I write it in my journal. I memorized Shakespearean sonics. I took Latin when I was in high school. They actually taught Latin. I took Latin. Uh, I got a good education in the public schools of Chicago in the 1960s, 1950s and 1960s. At the moment, Dr. Lowry, you're kind of all the rage uh, on Twitter and other social media platforms. Um, your conversations with, with Dr. McWhorter, um, what, what do you feel like it is about your conversations and about what you've been saying uh, around the national uh, dialogue that has kind of caught so many people's attention? Uh, and, and what has that been like for you? Oh, it's been great for me. I, I enjoy it. I think I might have found my second career or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know where where this goes and what I'm going to what I'm going to do with the opportunity. But um, you know, I, I feel something, an upswell of uh, of energy and excitement from other people about what I'm doing and within myself about what I'm doing. You got to ask me to say why I think people are enjoying what I have to offer to the public debate. And that there's no way to answer without patting myself on the back. <laughs> so forgive yeah. me for patting myself on the back. Forgive me. Working with John McWhorter, The Glenn Show, uh, Patreon.com. Actually, we're moving. I might as well say that. Uh, we're moving to Substack. Uh, yeah. We're moving the podcast to Substack. I am moving The Glenn Show to Substack. I should say that. Uh, and that'll that's coming up in the next few weeks, and I'll be announcing that and whatnot. But um, th there's a high level of intellectuality. It's intellectually serious. Yeah, you, you know you're dealing with a you know you're dealing with a serious grown up person. I mean, there's depth, there's resonance, there's there's a kind of solidity. There's the you see courage, a willingness to actually challenge the taboos and the and 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 the emperor has no clothes, and the uh, the man behind the curtain character of a lot of stuff that gets spoken and that's going on in American politics. I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, and so a, a willingness to ch to 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 challenge it. Uh, I, I think there's eloquence. I think there's the quality of and, and John contributes at the Glenn Show. I think very substantially to this. We're fun to listen to because we use the language well. Yeah. You know, we, you know, people appreciate the fact that uh, there's a kind of precision in, in the way in which we're articulating uh, what we're about. I think the moment, uh, you know, the George Floyd moment or whatever they're going to call this in the history yeah. books. Uh, and we've been talking, John and I, at the Glenn Show about race stuff for a decade, you know, yeah. but but the moment has called a lot of attention to it. It has called out a lot of sort of lightweight kind of crazy stuff. And then, yeah. so when you hear a clarity, a clear voice, a, a kind of solidly rational take, again, I know I'm patting myself on the back. People want to hear it. People want to hear it. So, you know, that's what I think. So last summer, Brown University President Christina Paxson sent a letter to faculty in which she lamented the systems of power and oppression uh, entrenched in our society. You wrote a response, which was published in City Journal, uh, and, and noted that the letter asserted controversial and arguable positions as though they were axiomatic certainties uh, and trafficked in the social justice warriors' pedantic language. Many colleges now see themselves as, as mechanisms of social change, 
uh, and have given up on promoting inquiry and debate in pursuit of truth. Uh, is this just a swing of the pendulum? Uh, will it swing back or uh, is this trend going to continue? I think we stand on the precipice and I think nothing less than Western civilization is at stake. <laughs> oh. I, I know how that sounds. I see no reason to think the pendulum swings back. None whatsoever. Oh. Uh, Paxson won. I got in the City Journal with a letter that a few thousand people around the country thought was great. But basically, Paxson and her uh, camp won. They won the George Floyd debate. Here's what I was saying. That was not a racial incident, necessarily. George Floyd. That, that was not Emmett Till. George Floyd. It was what it was. We could go into it. But it was not a sight of the coming to terms and the kind of quickening of the deep questions in American history of race. It was not that. It was not something warranting a state funeral, this, this, which is what proceeded. A state funeral proceeded in a gold casket with a caisson with big speeches being given over the um, over the uh, body of George Floyd as if he had been assassinated, as if it were a lynch mob that had pulled him out, as if he were the hope of the Black uh, aspiration who'd been cut down like Martin Luther King was in 1968. And what I was saying to my president who decided to put the entire weight of the university behind one take, a guy got killed in a dispute with a cop. It was a bad thing. The cop has been tried and convicted. Let the jury speak. But it was one case to put the whole way. Oh, we are now so concerned about racism. That performance has prevailed. That's the one that, it, that is active in the mind of uh, the people who are in the Biden administration who are presiding over the, the way in which the country conducts these affairs. And so, so I'm saying all of that to say there's no reason to think the pendulum is going to swing the other way. The barbarians are not only at the gates, they have overrun the walls of the city and they approach the citadel. Okay, so, so let's turn to this. The Wall Street Journal uh, noted that you're teaching a course on freedom of expression uh, with readings from Plato, Socrates, Milton, uh, and other authors that we, of course, love here uh, at CLT. Um, how have uh, students, though, responded to the course? Uh, were, the, were the students already familiar with these works uh, from the Western tradition? Uh, it seems to me like more and more uh, we're kind of getting away from uh, these works uh, in, in high schools across the country. Yeah, we are getting away from them. Uh, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. I don't see anybody who looks like me on the reading list. Again, the barbarians are at the gates. These people are winning. Th those arguments are prevailing. Um, it was not just uh, Plato, Socrates, Apology and whatnot. Uh, the Allegory of the Cave, we read that. It, it was not just Milton or Ray Opagitica. Uh, it was John Stuart Mill. Uh, it was George Orwell. It was Vaclav Havel. Uh, it, it was Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. I had a Cracker Jack teaching assistant. He's an undergraduate classics major. He's a classics major who translates Greek and Latin and who is in love with Cicero. That's one of his heroes. Okay. This kid, David Sachs, he and I put our heads together spent a year reading these works in an independent study, just him and me, and decided we were going to make a course out of it. And, and we had 20 Brown undergraduates 
20. Nobody missed a single class. And that is completely unprecedented in my 40 year experience as a college teacher. Attendance was 100%. They loved it. They, they, they They were so eager, they were so thirsty for an open space in which they felt safe to argue the questions, okay? And every single kind of question came up. Uh, and, you know, uh, we went back and forth. So uh, it, it, it reaffirmed me in a way, I say the barbarians at the gate, uh, there, there, there is a seed of hope, but the, the massive uh, plurality of opinion uh, is is uh, is going in the other direction. So I'm 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 not at all optimistic, Dr. Lowry. Uh, first of all, you look very young. Young, you look great. Uh, but you've also been teaching for a long time. Uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on on maybe the way students uh, have changed over time in the digital age, in the smartphone age. Do you feel like students are kind of categorically different than they were 25 years ago? You know, I, I am reluctant to say yes to that question, although I'm tempted to say yes. Okay. Uh, that was that was uh, that was Alan Bloom. That was kind of the question in Alan Bloom, the closing of the American mind. I don't know if you know the book, yep. uh, but but he's writing in the mid early mid 80s, probably took in late 70s to the mid 80s. I think that book comes out in like 86 or 85. Um, and uh, he's thinking about what a great education should be and what the point of coming to the university is. Mm-hmm. And he's seeing it undermined by various fads and fashions that's coming along in the sixties and seventies of, of uh, students. And I, I think there's, I think he has reason that the, you know, the currency is debased. People are not really, uh, they, they don't have a soul. They, they don't have a, they don't, they're not in love with the life of the mind, you know, um, the, the, things are trivialized. Alan Bloom is a curmudgeon. You know, he, he he doesn't like the way popular music is trending. He he thinks that the the uh, social life uh, of of the kids is becoming shallow and superficial, and that that uh, relativism is creeping in. And I agree. I agree. That's that really is the crux of the matter, isn't it? That oh. my truth, your truth, dead white men smash the statues. Uh, you know. They they want to reinvent everything in in every generation. Uh, no reverence, uh, whatever. Uh, but I I think another thing that's really big. I mean, these colleges have become uh, like consumer sites. I mean, they they become they top heavy with all this bureaucracy catering to this that or the other. They become fixated on this identity stuff where they want to pat the kids on the head and wrap them in a warm blanket and tell them everything's going to be okay. Everything's not going to be okay. I mean, you know, I got to protect the kid from uh, the pain of coming to realize that there's more Horatio to heaven and earth than is dreamt of in their philosophy. But that's the whole point of them coming to the college in the first place, to find out that their philosophy is, is uh, infantile and that, and that the world is a grand open place, uh, only there to challenge them. We're there, you know, and yet we want to reaffirm them. We want them to, we want to feed them. The dormitory has to be up to snuff. 
Uh, we got to have the right kind of swimming pool. So, Dr. Lowry, I'm wondering uh, if you would uh, say you are, are optimistic or pessimistic right now. I mean, we're, we're I, I feel like we're searching for rock bottom in some ways uh, as a nation right now. Um, when you look at, at the future of a four year brick and mortar liberal arts uh, college degree, I mean, I, I know more and more young people who are just saying, no, thanks. I'm going to opt out of this entirely. I don't see the value to it anymore. Uh, what is the future of college? And are, are you optimistic that the college, the university uh, is going to re-embrace uh, some kind of substance uh, that is worthy uh, of the lives of these young people? I don't know the answer to your question. You asked me what's the future of college and uh, how do I think it's going to evolve? And I honestly don't know. And it's a very interesting problem to me as an economist. Uh, branding, certification, credential, prestige, um, you know, the the universities and their um, uh, mad rush into relativism and uh, this trendy, uh, woke, uh, politically correct cul-de-sac that they wandered into may be spoiling the brand. They may be and technology, technology. We just had this pandemic. I taught every class last year from this room where you see me sitting right now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I taught to 20. I taught to 20 in a seminar. I taught to 80 in a bigger lecture course, but I could have been teaching to 2,000 or 80,000. So th these brick and mortar outfits now have a lock on, on the Citadel. They, they have the keys. Uh, if, if you want to get anointed as, you know, my PhD is from MIT, okay, that still has cachet. That means something. That means something. If you want the anointment, you got to come through here, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, Berkeley, et cetera. You, you got to come through here. Uh, but I don't know if it's a stable arrangement. Technology may be sowing the seeds of undermining it. And they may be drawing on capital that they're dwindling down, you know, uh, I think the big sign will be when when people stop making huge gifts, thinking that their name on the building at a university mm. is going to keep it alive for 200 years. You know, when, when they when they think they're buying a piece of the rock uh, and and when uh, alternative methods of certification, this is the thing that really, really interests me, because if you're starting from scratch, how do you how do you build the confidence of people in your judgment such that when you stamp somebody certified, it really, it really resonates. I mean, take a law firm, take a law firm. They, they, they're hiring young lawyers. And if they come from, or a judge who's hiring clerks, uh, and if they come from Harvard or Yale or Stanford or whatever, you know, and they got letters from distinguished faculty, uh, it's going to be hard to beat that coming from left field, coming from outside. Uh, so, so how do you, how do you start from scratch and establish the credibility? That seems to me to be the real problem, but I think that this technology is making it possible to contemplate alternative arrangements. Dr. Larry, I'm wondering, uh, two terms that I, I try to avoid using because I, I feel like they are in some ways, uh, they derail authentic conversation, uh, the terms, a uh, critical race theory and, and, and wokeism. Uh, I, I know that you've at least referred to wokeism uh, in the podcast already. I'm wondering if you could maybe offer a, a maybe short, concise a definition for these terms uh, and if they are terms that we should 
continue to employ in the national dialogue or if maybe they're just unhelpful at this point? Well, they've come. I think they are necessary. The woke sensibility, the woke orientation, the, 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 this is a very woke place. That does have meaning. What do we mean by it? It means they're very attentive to all of the norms and and kind of preferences that are associated with a certain political outlook or cast of mind that having to do with anti-black racism, you know, that having to do with uh, a, a sense of uh, political identity uh, around, around questions of race, critical race theory and woke, those things are kind of going to go together. I don't much, I don't ever really use critical race theory. It's become a, a banner. It's a bumper sticker and, and everybody kind of calls on it and, that what they're against is they're against these books like uh, Robin D'Angelo, uh, White Fragility, and uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. They're, they're against the diversity training where uh, implicit bias uh, seminars are undertaken and people are asked to talk about being white and white, white privilege. They, they're against the, um, this is anti-woke sensibility. This is what they're against. They are against the effort to redefine the conversation around race from equality of opportunity and non-discrimination to one of equity, reparation, 400 years, 1619, not 19, not 1776, affirmative action. Uh, we don't see anybody who looks like us. Let, let, let's sue McDonald's because they don't spend enough advertising dollars with black owned firms. Let's have a black vice president. I promise a woman is going to be vice president if I get elected. Uh, all of this is is a is a part of the kind of cluster of attitudes and, and orientations that one associates with woke uh, uh, sensibility informed by critical race theory. So let me let me answer you now. I didn't answer. I just kind of gestured. Let me let me answer you. Here's what I understand critical race theory. An account of racial inequality that roots these outcomes in characteristics of the larger social system, not in characteristics of the actions of individual persons. We're not worried about uh, employment discrimination. We're worried about a history of exclusion of black people from, you know, whatever. The acts of individual persons are are not the subject of our critique. Mass incarceration. It's not really about whether police are disproportionately targeting blacks, although we think they are. It's really about the fact that the way the law was made in the first place was anti-black. It's about the fact that the existence of a police force the historical origins of policing is rooted in trying to control slaves. Uh, systemic racism is responsible for the wealth gap. This is the woke critical race theory sensibility. America is built on the stolen labor of Africans and the stolen land of the indigenous. It's a bandit country. Plunder is at the heart of the country's heartbeat. This is Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, Between the World and Me. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. 
So, Dr. Glowry, uh, here, here at CLT, of course, we are uh, book culture. I'm wondering if there has been maybe one text uh, that has been exep- exceptionally kind of formative uh, in your own life. Maybe oh, one gosh. our listeners need to go and read right now. Oh, gosh. Oh, I mean, there's so many. There's so many books, and some of them are technical, uh, like Kenneth Arrow's Social Choice and Individual Values, which is a mathematical politics book. But it asks a question that people had been asking for hundreds of years, uh, abstract question about governance and liberalism, right at the center of liberalism. Can you construct a social decision-making criterion that rationally aggregates the individual criteria in a systematic way, to which the answer is no, you cannot. The impossibility theorem. But but for me, this book, this is just one book, man. I could name 30 books. Okay, this okay. is just one book. But it's an important book because it showed me the power of the kind of rational, analytical attack on on political questions. Of course, it's reductive. It, it doesn't you know, the rational choice political scientists are held in irrepute by the classical political yeah. theory type political scientists who read Hobbes and Locke and whatnot. Uh, and they need not, they, they're on the same team. They're just, they're just playing different positions is kind of the way that I look at it. Um, but yeah, that was one book, uh, Paul Samuelson's Foundations of Economic Analysis. Maybe that that's, that's got a bit in my mind. I was like, 22 when I encountered that book. It was written in 1945. I, I encountered that book in 1970. And again, it's technical social science. He kind of takes the classical physics, the mechanics apparatus, the calculus, differential calculus, integral calculus, matrix algebra, and, and he applies it to uh, problems in consumer theory and the theory of the firm and equilibrium theory and economics. This is Paul Samuelson, 1947. Uh, Games and Economics Behavior. This is John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern. I think it's like 1948 or 49. Uh, Game theory being born, you know, the strategic interaction between rational players with conflicting interests and things of this kind. Crime and Punishment has got a claim on my attention. The Brothers Karamazov, the Grand Inquisitor and all that, has got a claim on my attention. Again, we are here uh, again with the one and only Dr. Glenn Lowry, professor at Brown University. Dr. Lowry, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, Jeremy, thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.